0: I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There's such a constant avalanche of
1: new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast playlists can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And
0: every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts.
2: This is a CBC podcast. Pregnancy is often talked about as a time of joy and anticipation, but the reality can be a lot more complicated. It can also be uncomfortable and not much fun sometimes, and a lot of aspects of it aren't that well understood. Take, for example, morning sickness. It's very common, and for some people, it can be debilitating. Hyperemesis gravidarum is the medical term for a rare but severe form of morning sickness, and scientists have only just figured out what actually causes it. Marlena Faso is one of the authors of a new study in the journal Nature that sheds some light on this mystery. She is a geneticist at the Center for Genetic Epidemiology at the University of Southern California. She's in Los Angeles. Marlena, good morning.
1: Good morning.
2: Tell us a bit more about what a woman goes through when she has, as I say, this, this uh, extreme the severe condition uh inversion of of morning sickness
1: yeah so it's not morning sickness it's all day and night sickness that lasts for months mm. Uh, and people that have this are not able to eat or drink normally. They can't perform their daily routine. Uh, they generally become dehydrated and have electrolyte imbalances. They generally lose weight instead of gaining weight in pregnancy and uh, require support and medications and IV fluids uh, for dehydration and in more extreme cases will need to be hospitalized.
2: I think morning, yeah. more people know that morning sickness is incredibly common. Something like 7 in 10 women experience that.
1: Yes, yes. So, And this occurs in about uh, 2% or even up to 10% in some studies.
2: What have we learned about what causes it?
1: So before the new study that came out, I had found that there were gene variants that were associated with it. So genes uh, are basically like recipes, and there's a gene called GDF15 that codes for a hormone called GDF15. So just like a chocolate chip cookie recipe would code for making a chocolate chip cookie, um, the GDF15 gene had these changes in it that were more common in people that had hyperemesis. So that's the what we knew before the new study came out. And in this new study now, we uh, figured out the mechanism. So we figured out what those changes are doing. And so what happens is that patients with hyperemesis, they have too little of this hormone prior to pregnancy, and that makes them hypersensitive to the hormone during pregnancy where they can have higher levels than normal. So GDF-15 is a hormone that everybody has it at some low levels, except for when they're ill. And then it goes up and basically tells the patient that you are, for example, when you have an infection, it goes up. Mm. Um, And so it tells you that it's better to rest and recover uh, that's what we think the the evolutionary mechanism is, that it's better to rest and recover and not worry about going out and finding food until you recover. So um, that's what it normally does. Then in pregnancy, it goes up to very high levels and with people that have hyperemesis, they are extremely sensitive to this because of their lower levels before pregnancy, and um, it causes that nausea and vomiting.
2: Tell me more about that and about how that hormone w- would be entering the bloodstream for those who are pregnant. I mean, what's what's going on that would lead to those higher levels of the hormone being in the body?
1: Yeah, so in the new study, we found that the majority of it is expressed in the placenta, which the fetal portion of the pl- placenta. Uh, so it gets turned on. Those genes get turned on in the placenta, and they say, make GDF-15. And so uh, it's it, every pregnancy, um, in early pregnancy, it rises very rapidly in the placenta. It gets into the bloodstream and travels to the nausea and vomiting center of the brain called the brainstem, and um, there it signal- signals that nausea and vomiting.
2: How were you able to, to figure this out? How are you able to pinpoint, in particular, the role of this hormone?
1: Well, like I said, originally identified variations in the hormone that were associated with hyperemesis. And now in the new study, we figured out there were Uh, lower levels of it. So uh, we measured the uh, levels of that hormone in people that had those variations that I had identified previously. And we found that they had lower levels than in people that did not have that variation. Part of it is interesting
2: in part because whether it's a debilitating or extreme uh, incarnation of morning sickness, but morning sickness in general has been a bit of a black box, right? People for a long time have not really understood what has caused it.
1: Definitely, it's completely new um, now, this understanding of the cause. So unfortunately, it's long been thought to be psychological or caused by uh, the hormone HCG, which is another hormone that rises in pregnancy. But now we know um that those those theories are just theories that are not correct, and that the the main uh cause seems to be this hormone g d f fifteen which is a hormone that uh whose role is to cause loss of appetite and nausea and vomiting
2: you're a researcher on this, but you have personal experience in this as well
1: Yes, that is
2: true Tell me, so tell me I, what happened
1: yeah, so I had uh, nausea and vomiting in my pregnancy in 90, 1997 um, and was not diagnosed, even though I lost 15 pounds and went to the emergency room twice for IV fluids. In my second pregnancy, I didn't think it could be worse, but it was much worse in my second pregnancy. I could not eat, drink, or even move without violently vomiting. So I just had to lie completely still for months and um Uh, My doctor gave me seven different drugs uh, to try to control it. Um, He put me on IV fluids, and then ultimately I was put on a feeding tube. uh, But nothing worked, and I ended up losing the baby in the second trimester. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a motivating force for
2: this work. I read something about your work, and it talked about there's an image that you have above your desk that kind of depicts where you were in the worst of this, right?
1: Yeah, it's a drawing that my sister made.
2: Can you describe it?
1: It's a drawing of of me where I'm just completely green, which is I was basically green all the time because I was just always on the verge of vomiting. And um, it has a IV fluid pull set up next to me because I had constant IV fluids because I was constantly getting dehydrated and I couldn't even drink water. Yeah. And I have tears in my eyes Uh, in the picture, although I was not really producing tears, but it was an extremely miserable uh, and terrifying experience. It was torture.
2: I've heard you describe it as torture.
1: Yeah, it was. I couldn't move. I had to just lay completely still. If I moved, I would just start vomiting violently.
2: How did your doctor treat you?
1: So my doctor, he told me that I was just trying to get attention from my family. What? Um, he,
2: he told you He told you what?
1: That I was trying to get attention from my husband first, and then when my parents, um, who had recently retired, they had to take turns changing my bedpan because, like I said, I couldn't move, so I couldn't get up to go to the bathroom, and I was given IV fluids, so I needed to have a bedpan change. And, of course... Um, it was extremely humiliating to have to have my parents coming in to do that. But my doctor told me that I I just wanted attention from my parents. And that is, you know, exaggerating symptoms for attention is is I'm not alone in, in having that, um, being treated as if that is what's causing it. Still to this day, even though I've worked so hard for decades to try to stop that, Uh, misogynistic nonsense, it still is perpetuated to this day by some doctors.
2: Where's that coming from, do you think? When a patient like yourself would come in presenting the symptoms that you described in extraordinary pain, but also, as you said, you're unable to even have a a sip of water or else you'll be sick, that, that, that a doctor would dismiss those symptoms? Because I would imagine there are a number of other women who have gone through what you went through who had similar treatment at the hands of their doctors. Where's that coming from, do you think?
1: I think, you know, when you have doctors teaching this over and over again and the cause is unknown, that they just believe what they're taught. And so I'm hoping that now that we know what the cause is, the biological reason, which I have been searching for for so many years to to prove that that is not true, will make a change and put an end to this.
2: How How... Does your own experience shape the research that you're doing?
1: I mean, it's definitely a motivating force. You know, there have definitely been setbacks along the way. And so it really motivates me to, you know, take those setbacks in stride and get back up the next day and keep marching on.
2: (laughs) Aside from from the research showing to your point that that this is real this is not something that patients have you know made up in their heads or what have you how do you think the discovery of this hormone could be applied to help women who are suffering through this
1: yeah so the new study is really exciting because it gives us a way to both possibly prevent hyperemesis by increasing the hormone prior to pregnancy and also treat it by blocking it during pregnancy. So there are two new approaches that we have to um, treating this that are really geared toward the main cause of it. So past medications are... Also, targeting receptors in the nausea and vomiting center of the brain, just like GDF 15, but they're different receptors that do not appear to be the main cause, whereas this seems to be the key site of action. And so I think these medications are really going to be game changers for people with this
2: disease. Which do you think is more promising, that idea of cutting it off at the past and preventing it, or or the treatment part of it?
1: I think both will be, uh, are likely to be very promising ways to treat it. Um, The issue with treating it prior is that, you know, we're not going to probably do that in everybody. That might be more geared toward people that have had it in a past pregnancy or people that are at higher risk, like that have a family history of it. Whereas, you know, during pregnancy, we'll just be treating anybody that has it.
2: One of the issues around treatment um, is that in past, there have been very promising treatments that have had extraordinarily terrible side effects and people's minds might go back to thalidomide, for example. What are you up against then in, in, in terms of making people understand that any treatment that might be offered is going to be safe, isn't going to be that history repeating itself?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have to do it very slowly and carefully, but so far uh, it looks like it's hopefully going to be safe um in the study that we have it's the first human examples of people that carried the mutation in gdf15 that we now know lowers the levels to more than uh sorry to less than half and they had carried fetuses that produced that carried that gene that is a gdf15 lowering Gene, and so presumably was also producing less than half during pregnancy. So uh, it does seem to be safe, most likely, to lower it to at least half the levels. So, um, which I think will be enough to really help these women. But um, we, you know, we need to test it out and see and just do it slowly and carefully, like any clinical trial. Mm. Um, Yeah. So.
2: How long do you think something like this would be until something like this would be available, that that it would be able to help those women who who are suffering through this right now? Uh,
1: Well, we need to do it, like I said, slowly and carefully. So there's uh, clinical trials usually have a phase one, phase two and phase three, and that takes uh, several years. Um, But I I think we're going to get started pretty soon. So um, hopefully Uh, In the next five years, we'll have the answer to whether these are going to work and be safe in pregnancy.
2: In the meantime, for women who, like yourself, might have or might be going through what you went through all those years ago, what would you say to them?
1: I'd say that at least now you know it's not your fault. Um, you you can tell your doctor if they're mistreating you or your family members or friends that uh, we now know what is causing this and um, that hope is on the horizon.
2: I'm really glad to talk to you about this. I think there are a lot of people who will be encouraged by this research and encouraged by what you just said, that it's that it's not their fault, that it's not in their heads. Thank you very much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Marlena Fazo is a geneticist at the University of Southern California. She was in Los Angeles. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Café with
1: the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Café with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Café. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Dr. Amanda Black is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Ottawa, president of the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada. She's in Ottawa this morning. Dr. Black, good morning to you. Good morning. Anecdotally, you know already that there are a lot of people who are talking about this research. From your perspective, how big of a deal is this breakthrough?
0: Well, I think as um, Dr. Fazo's mentioned, this is a very common condition that we see, particularly nausea and vomiting and pregnancy and the nausea. So the vast majority of women will experience some of that. And then in some cases, we'll see patients with um, you know more severe symptoms, so the hyperemesis gravidarum. And, you know, to to have potentially um, a better understanding of the cause of it and which will help us guide treatment in the future is certainly a wonderful news for us as a specialty.
2: One of the things that she said was that doctors told her the severe nausea that she was living through was all in her head. This was 25 years ago, but how common is a story like hers now?
0: Yeah, I, that really saddens me to hear her story, um, and that her fear, her, her concerns were dismissed the way they were, because whether or not we know a cause of something, it's really important that we recognize and treat p- patients when they're experiencing these symptoms. And as she mentioned, these symptoms can be very severe and debilitating. So I I would hope certainly that we've come a long way from 25 years ago again we we see a number of um patients in our practice who have nausea Um, And we do see patients who have more severe forms and, uh, you know, we certainly try to treat those and try to improve their quality of life as best we can when they're experiencing them. But, you know, again, it saddens me to hear that that is her experience that she had. And hopefully we're not seeing that as often now, but we certainly want to make sure that we've educated providers so that that isn't the experience people have today.
2: People have connected it to larger conversations that we've had on this program around endometriosis, for example, has been characterized as women's pain the, that often because of who's doing research because of um, biases built into a medical system that it it's just not taken seriously in the same way do you see that connection
0: well i think one of the challenges with this in particular it's something that maybe be perceived because it's so common mm-hmm. it happens in you know the vast majority of pregnancies people just consider that to be normal um and just because something is common doesn't mean that we can't can't recognize it as an entity and treat it for and help people improve their quality of life as best we can. So um, again, I'm I'm hopeful that we've come a long way and that we do recognize this. And certainly in our specialty, we recognize that this is something that we see. I think one of the challenges sometimes because people perceive it as normal or pregnant individuals perceive it as normal or something they just have to deal with in pregnancy, they may not even always bring it up either because they think it's normal or because their fear it's being dismissed. And what I would want to encourage all pregnant individuals is to bring that up when they do talk to their providers. And similarly for providers to ask about that um, question, ask that question of their patients as well.
2: What are the treatments that are available right now?
0: So when we look at treatments, we we kind of start with diet dietary modifications and potentially life life modifications if we can and then failing those we move on to um, therapy so medications um, IV hydration if required um, uh, electrolyte correction vitamin replacement etc so we certainly encourage people when they're experiencing this uh, uh, to eat small frequent meals try to avoid um, getting hungry or having an empty stomach or or on the other side a full stomach eliminating spicy um, uh, kind of uh, odorous foods that are high fat acidic or really sweet and try to use salty low fat bland foods instead trying to have cold fluids um, I- instead of hot fluids and avoid lying down after eating so those are some of the dietary modifications we try and then again we do have a safe and effective medications that can be used during um, pregnancy as well to try to heat treat symptoms if those other things aren't working.
2: You're very intentional in saying safe and effective for reasons that, that I think are obvious, but I just wonder how much mm-hmm. resistance you get f- for people who, who might be prescribed those medications during pregnancy, given concerns that they have their own health, baby's health, but also um, what has happened in the past.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really great point. And it may be, again, a reason why some pregnant individuals don't bring it up when they talk because they're worried about taking anything during their pregnancy that could potentially harm um, their baby as it's developing. So yes, we'll see patients who say, you know what, I'm I'm okay, I can, I can keep going with this. Um, I, I don't want to take anything. And other patients who say, no, please, I, I need to take something because I can't function like this. And, you know, again, when we see patients, we reassure them that what we do have, we have several years of experience with it with no um, sign of uh, fetal concerns associated with the use of the medications that we currently suggest for treating um, nausea and vomiting or hyperemesis of pregnancy.
2: Just finally, I'll ask you the question that I asked Marlena, mm-hmm. which is, People will be, you know, because this research is getting a lot of attention and as common as morning sickness is, people will be encouraged by this. They'll be paying attention to it. They'll want to know when, you know, this kind of treatment might be available to them. In the meantime, what would you say to somebody who's pregnant who is going through a really difficult time because of morning sickness that might not just be limited to the morning?
0: Right. And that's and that's definitely one of the key things. It's not limited to the morning. Yeah. This is something that can happen all throughout the day. Um, so I would encourage those individuals to speak to their healthcare providers. Let them know that this is what they're experiencing. Let them know how it's affecting their quality of life. Um, because you know a little bit of nausea is not the same as nausea that it, 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 you know has in Dr. Fazo's case had her lying down in bed for the you know for, for much of her pregnancy. So make sure that they're aware of it and then let them know when you feel that you you do need to be um, treated for that because I think that's really, really important. You can certainly advocate for yourself. And then as physicians and healthcare providers we need to be reminded that it's something that we should be asking about in patients because the number of times I have asked patients if, they, if everything's going going well with their pregnancy. And they say, yeah, it's all been going fine. And then I say, have you had any problems with nausea or vomiting? And they're like, oh yeah, I've had that. Mm. And <laughs> So just reminding people, this is something that you can bring up. And we there, we do have ways of addressing that. So please, um, if it's a concern that you have, let healthcare your healthcare provider know so that we can help work on solutions for you.
2: Dr. Black, thank you very much for this.
0: Okay, thank you.
2: Dr. Amanda Black is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Ottawa and president of the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada. And she was in Ottawa. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca
0: slash podcasts.